Welcome to the Dead Lady Show podcast. I'm Susan Stone. The Dead Lady Show celebrates forgotten and also possibly quite infamous women who achieved amazing things against all odds while they were alive. The show is recorded in front of a delightful audience in Berlin, and on the podcast we bring you a special selection of talks from these events. This episode is the second part of a special series we're calling Drunken Frauen. To mark the 100th anniversary of the publication of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, we're presenting the stories of four women connected in some way to that iconic gothic book, which is also considered the first science fiction novel. So, to our creation. In this short series, you'll also get to hear a bit of Dead Lady Show co-founders Katie Darbyshire and Florian Dowsons in their elements, introducing the show live on stage at Akud in Berlin, our lovely venue, and they'll be joining me again in the last episode of this mini-series for a chat to wrap things up. Now, these four episodes are a bit interrelated, literally in a way, so it might be best to listen to at least the first two in order. This is episode two. Uh, by the way, this series is coordinated with a Bard College Berlin project on Frankenstein, and there were lots of students and faculty in our audience at our show. This time around, the star herself, Mary Shelley, presented by Florian. Here's how Katie introduced him at our live show. Uh, it's my job now to introduce Florian. Say it. Da da yeah, there's some Dutch people in the house. They can say it no problem. Florian. Thousands, thousands, hundreds and thousands of Florians. Florian, thousands, works at Bard College Berlin, yeah. where he teaches language and thinking, although I assume that everybody who arrives there already can do those two things beforehand. You, you'd think that. And he also teaches a course on work, but not the song by Rihanna. Oh, that was a better joke than the really awful one beforehand, but never mind. Florian is going to tell us about Mary Shelley. Thank you, Katie. I am here tonight to tell you about Mary Shelley. Uh, you already know a lot about Mary Shelley. I figure she, she wrote Frankenstein. Uh, we've just heard the story of her mother. I will pick up the story um, just about where Katie left it off. So Katie extemporized into the future and like an alternate utopian future in which Mary Wollstonecraft survived. In real life, um, she did not, uh, only for 10 days, and then uh, Mary was on her own, little Mary, Mary Shelley, Mary, not yet Shelley. Though Mary grew up without her mother, Wollstonecraft's influence was strong. Her portrait hanging over their dinner table, always watching over the family. Godwin, who you'll remember from, the, from Katie's talk, married again rather quickly to a neighbor from quiet Somerstown. She was a widow who wore green-tinted glasses and was very different from Wollstonecraft. She was petty, blunt, and proudly unintellectual. That's not to say she wasn't smart. Uh, her translation of the Swiss family Robinson is still in print from Penguin Classics and credited to her husband. <laughs> Mary would grow up in a blended family with Fanny, so Mary Wollstonecraft's uh, daughter with Im Gimmer yeah, the Twitter guy. Um, 
her stepbrother Charles and stepsister Claire, so her stepmother's existing children, and um, half-brother William, who was born a few years later. She famously learned to read by tracing the letters on her mother's grave at St. Pancras. Her father would write that she was singularly bold and somewhat imperious, but almost invincible in her studies. She would be read her mother's children's stories, and Godwin also tested all of his own writing on his growing brood. His lessons on social equality, honesty, and generosity would stay with Mary for the rest of her life, for better and for worse. When Mary was 10, her father opened a bookshop, a very fateful decision as it would prove a lifelong money pit, moving them to the city near the Spitalfields slaughterhouses, where her mother grew up, actually. None of Mary's childhood writings survive, not even a speech she wrote on the influence of government on the character of the people. But we do know a persistent illness, possibly eczema, but certainly also her extreme dislike for her stepmother, led to her being sent to Scotland <laughs> for almost two years. In Frankenstein's introduction, she would later write, it was beneath the trees or on the bleak sides of the woodless mountains near that my true compositions, the airy flights of my imagination, were born and fostered. I did not make myself the heroine of these tales. I could not figure to myself that romantic woes or wonderful events would ever be my lot. <laughs> Little did she know, right? Um, but I was not confined to my own identity, and I could people the hours with creations far more interesting to me at that age than my own sensations. Meanwhile, Percy Bysshe Shelley and his pretty wife were visiting Godwin almost daily. So while Mary was in Scotland, Godwin had this poet <laughs> over almost every day. Um, this obscure young poet profoundly identified with Godwin's work, particularly his work, uh, Political Justice. After Shelley had been kicked out of uni for publishing a screed on atheism, um, the 19-year-old Shelley had eloped with a girl who was three years younger. They now had a young child and another baby on the way. But on Mary's return from Scotland, sparks started to fly between her and Shelley. Mary was 17, Shelley was 22. And they'd read all of the same books. <laughs> a close friend would describe the perennially hatless, open-shirted Shelley as wild, intellectual, unearthly, like a spirit that has just descended from the sky, like a demon risen at that moment out of the ground. No wonder then that Tumblr still claims that Mary, <laughs> no wonder that Tumblr still claims that Mary lost her virginity on her mother's willow-shaded grave. Like Godwin, Shelley was a vegetarian, and like Godwin, oops, that's a battery, um, Mary and Shelley would never eat sugar um, produced by slaves. Heartened by her father's old radical anti-marriage ideas, Mary believed that running away with a married man would somehow honor her parents. <laughs> it seemed even sanctioned from the pages of her mother's unfinished novel that we heard a bit about earlier, Maria. I think it was, Maria is a different book than Mary. <sighs> There's so many Marys in this story. Anyway, so Mary Wollstonecraft wrote this unfinished novel called Maria, in which she wrote, death may snatch me from you before you can weigh my advice or enter into my reasoning. I would then, with fond anxiety, lead you very early in life to form your grand principle of action, 
to save you from the vain regret of having, through irresolution, let the springtide of existence pass away unimproved, unenjoyed. Gain experience, ah, gain it while experience is worth having and acquire sufficient fortitude to pursue your own happiness. As much in love with her parents' ideas as with Mary, Shelley found in her a true partner, one he felt might be open to polyamory experiments even. He wrote, love is free. To promise forever to love the same woman is not less absurd than to promise to believe the same creed. That's, you know, the people who, the people who knew would know what he was talking about. Though Godwin strongly opposed the affair, he trusted the poet's promise that he would support Godwin for the rest of his life, which is one of the things that Shelley would do time and time again in his life. He would promise these people things, and then he would have to pay, basically, later. He did not know that the always impulsive and generous Shelley was still years away from his inheritance. This is a picture of his house. No, this is a picture of them. Oh, it's not them. That's Elle Fanning. Anyway, that's a picture of his house. Um, he did not know that Shelley had been borrowing against this potential future windfall exorbitantly for years and years, and his family had practically already disowned him. After Shelley threatened a suicide pact, the young couple decided to flee to Europe. At the last minute, taking along Mary's stepsister, Claire, she wasn't called Claire then, she'd call herself Claire later. It's complicated, we'll call her Claire. She was half a, half a year younger than, than Mary. <laughs> Always easily seasick, Mary was even worse on this crossing over to France, as she was probably pregnant. In London, meanwhile, scandal erupted. The most malicious rumors suggesting that Godwin had sold two daughters to Shelley. Now, newly free from wars, uh, the continent posed a great attraction to the English, but Shelley had neglected to bring much money, wasted a great deal of what he did bring on an ill-fated donkey, and then sprained his ankle. <laughs> so he would ride the mule while these two women walked alongside him <laughs> all the way to Switzerland. No, they, they got sort of a carriagey thing that couldn't be called a carriage because it was way too crappy for that. Ultimately, their journey was cut short in the Alps, and they returned along the ruin-littered Rhine, even visiting my hometown. Ooh. Isn't it lovely? That's still standing. This is in Nijmegen. This is the Barbarossa Chapel. I would, I would go there on my school breaks. Mary's still very much in love, but increasingly annoyed with Claire, whom biographer Muriel Spark devastatingly called artsy, like in this company, <laughs> you don't want to be artsy. Claire, for her part, would throw endless tantrums to get Shelley's attention. On their return to England, they moved to new lodgings near Shelley's wife, who was about to give birth. Mary couldn't help but suffer over Shelley's excitement about this new son. And worse, her family wouldn't see her, nor would anyone else from her previous life. Pregnant, stuck in bed, and with Shelley on the run from the bailiffs, or worse, going, quote, heaps of places with Claire, Mary grew isolated. Shelley, meanwhile, tried to get Mary to flirt with one of his male friends, and though she gamely played along, she was clearly only really interested in Shelley. Their baby girl was born two months early and only lived for a few weeks. Mary was 17 and soon suffered a recurring dream, quote from her journal. 
dreamed that my little baby came to life again, that it had been only been cold and that we rubbed it by the fire and it lived awake and find no baby. Soon she was pregnant again. Shelley settled his debts by taking out more loans, which got them a house with a staff and a garden. In 1816, William, their second child, was born, but still Godwin would not see them. This didn't stop him from asking Shelley for money. Um, as both men believed the fortunate owed it to themselves to support the less fortunate intellectuals of their time. Perhaps jealous of Mary's union with a poet, Claire had set her sights on an actually famous one. So dreamy, Lord Byron. Um, <laughs> hounding him with letters in which he flaunted her infamous relations until Byron gave in. Soon, Claire was pregnant. Byron was on his way to Geneva with his very handsome personal physician, John Polidori. There he is on the right. And Claire, Mary, and Shelley soon followed. The famous poet enjoyed Shelley and Mary's company, though the other English people in Switzerland were scandalized. On the other side of the lake, we have the famous villa Diodati, where Lord Byron, greatest living English poet, resides in exile. Romantic, scholar, duelist, and best-selling author of Child Harold. He was forced to leave his native land after many scandals, including incest and adultery with Lady Caroline Lamb. Mad, bad, and dangerous to know, she called him. That's uh, from the movie Gothic, in which Natasha Richardson plays Mary Shelley, Julian Sands plays uh, Shelley, and Gabriel Byrne plays Byron. So uh, the reality of, of, of this vacation by the lake compared to the stories that these people uh, were making up was probably rather tame. But the scandal that the bisexual Byron was running away from was not incest, which after all was not illegal, um, but sodomy, which was illegal. So that's what he was running from. So it was a bit of a mirror to, to Oscar Wilde's story. Mary, here in Switzerland, the lake, the mountains, uh, her son was thriving. She could literally not be happier. And then I turn the page. No, it's going to be okay um, for now. 1814 was to be the famous year without a summer. This due to ashes from an... Oh, this is, oh, this is the villa where they stayed. It's lovely. There's, there's Shelley. He's lounging. <laughs> so... 1814 was to be this year without a summer, this due to the ashes from an Indonesian volcano. There it is. Um, and the dark and chilly nights fueled the famous ghost story competition on Lake Geneva. I will let Hugh Grant explain what happens. I was just saying to Mr. Shelley that it would be a good idea to read horror stories during the evenings. Shelley... Fiction is by far the best vaccine against reality. It's a very good idea, Polidori. But I propose that in honor of Shelley, instead of vaccinating ourselves against reality, we should invent it anew. Mm -hmm. Mary was just promising me that she is going to write a horror story. Each one of us shall write the most horrifying tale that he or she can imagine, and we shall demonstrate that reality is always even more horrifying. Letters are the most horrifying for me. Sometimes they can be more appalling than reality. Right. When do we start? Tomorrow? Tomorrow. Shelley, I feel certain that you will want to go to the castle of Chilon, and there we shall really be able to contemplate the horror of this world. Marvellous. We shall leave at dawn. Not you, Polidori. Your bad ankle will not permit it. 
Best you stay with the young ladies. Yes, my lord. Uh, th that's from a Spanish film called Remando al Viento. Rowing with the Wind was the English translation. Uh, Hugh plays Byron and Elizabeth Hurley plays Claire Claremont, I think. It's a terrible movie. <laughs> you can't even imagine how bad it is. I didn't watch all of it. Uh, so the most famous entry in this competition, of course, was uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus. There's many, many ideas about how this idea even occurred to her. There's entire books written about this. I will not go into this. Instead, I will show you a clip. What's wrong? My thoughts are so clear one moment and then the next. And writing, everything is muddled and strained and confused. It will come. from yet another terrible movie called Haunted Summer with the <laughs> dreamboat Eric Stoltz, strangely as Shelley. Um, and then it has Laura Dern, the wonderful Laura Dern as Claire Claremont, um, and, and Alex Winter from <laughs> Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure <laughs> as Polidori. On their return to England, Mary and Shelley were soon faced with horrible news. First, Mary's half-sister Fanny, so the, the first daughter of Mary Wollstonecraft, overdosed on laudanum. Suicide was still illegal, so the family did not claim her body. Then they learned that Shelley's wife had drowned herself in the serpentine. She'd been pregnant, the father unknown. In an attempt to gain custody of his children, Shelley and Mary got married, but to no avail. Shelley was uh, declared an unfit guardian. The Godwins were present at the wedding, and Mary was very happy to have her father back in her life. And when Clara gave birth a week later, Byron did not acknowledge his daughter. Everyone else simply believed she was Shelley's. In 1818, Frankenstein was published anonymously, as you can see in the picture, though many believed that too was Shelley's work. Reviews were impressed, but not overwhelmingly positive. Quote, when we have thus admitted that Frankenstein has passages which appall the mind and make the flesh creep. We have given it all the praise it can be called, which we dare to bestow. Our taste and our judgment alike revolt at this kind of writing, and the greater the ability with which it may be executed, the worse it is. It inculcates no lesson of conduct, manners, or morality. It cannot mend and will not even amuse its readers unless their taste has been deplorably vitiated. They didn't like it. The newly official Shelleys moved to the countryside where Mary cared for her son, ran the house, and studied Roman history in order to find a new topic for, for a book that she wanted to write. Mary was 19 and soon gave birth for the third time. Clara, a girl. This is a picture of Mary, not of Clara. Scared to have their children taken away, they went abroad again. From Venice, they received word from Byron that he would take custody of his illegitimate daughter after all. He had just learned that he had lost Ada. 
uh, or that he would never gain custody of her. So he was like, if I can't have her, I'll have the other one. Uh, he also renamed her Allegra, this, this new daughter. And eventually they conceded Claire, so Claire decided to, to, to give the kid to him. Not that he cared for it, obviously. He gave it to some friends in Venice. In Italy, Mary would go for very long walks, uh, read more Latin classics. She would help transcribe Shelley's translation of the symposium, the first not to shy away from Plato's descriptions of homosexuality. Mary would later write, in many particulars, it shocks our present manners, but no one can be a reader of the works of antiquity unless they can transport themselves from these to other times and judge not by our, but by their morality. This idyllic existence of writing and reading and walking was soon shaken when Shelley made them travel across Italy and the already sickly newborn developed dysentery and died in the hallway of a Venetian inn. Little Clara was buried on the beach at the Lido. The Shelleys drifted through Italy for almost a year. In Rome, where they lived, they met the Pope and their two-and-a-half-year-old son, William, sat for this lovely portrait by Amelia Curran. Within a month, William too would be dead of malaria. Mary wrote, we have now lived five years together and if all the events of the five years were blotted out, I might be happy. But to have won and then cruelly have lost the associations of four years is not an accident to which the human mind can bend without much suffering. Pregnant again, she and Shelley kept apart, meeting only for meals and for two hours of translating Dante's Purgatory. <laughs> she gave birth to a boy, Percy, in Florence, and the Shelleys spent the next two years in Pisa, still accompanied by the exhausting Claire. Shelley seemed to be itching to stray. Mary called it his Italian platonics, and she also struck up a very intense friendship with a Greek prince and revolutionary. This tentative new start in life, however, was shattered when they learned that Claire's daughter with Byron had died of typhus. Claire would go to Russia, become a governess, but the Shelleys fled with friends to a remote villa in Liguria on the, on the Bay of Lerici. Shelley and a friend had been working on a boat that could compete with, that's the villa, charming. It looks decrepit and, and horrifying. So Shelley and a friend had been working on a boat to compete with Byron's. Byron had designed this boat. Here's a picture of the two boats. Uh, so Byron's looks very fancy. Shelley's, not so much. Uh, so Shelley loved it there. He loved that he was by the sea. He could sail his boat in and out of the bay, go anywhere he wanted to. But Mary, who had just miscarried, just wanted to get the hell out of this isolated place. There was no village nearby. They had to Mules had to bring the food in the place terrified her. And her terror proved to be prophetic because one day Shelley's ship failed to arrive in the bay. A storm had surprised him and all aboard the ship had drowned. His friends built a funeral pyre on the beach. In the ashes, they found a petrified organ that was thought to be his heart, more likely his liver, and would remain in Mary's traveling desk for the rest of her life. I don't have a picture of that. I have a picture of some locks of their hair um, the one on the left is Mary's hair. On the right is, is uh, Percy's. Percy's her husband, not Percy, her son. She wrote at this point to her father, I have some, some of his friends about me who worship him. They all agree that he was an elementary being and that death does not apply to him. I am not, however, so desolate as you might think. 
He is ever with me, encouraging me to become wise and good, that I may be worthy to join him. In her journal, however, she wrote, I am one cut off in the prime of life from hope, enjoyment, and prosperity. The rock on which I built my hopes has crumbled away. Mary was 24. She tried to impose a sense of order. In Genoa, she started teaching her only surviving child, Percy or Persino, to read and speak English, which he didn't. She kept up with her Greek studies, sketched the landscape, wrote short stories, not very good ones, for money. In England, Mary was still very controversial, but her Frankenstein was starting to gain traction because of several highly popular stage adaptations. Behind me, you'll see a clip from Thomas Edison's version uh, from 1910. These stage adaptations, there were like five uh, in a year in London alone, uh, earned her zero pounds, though. Um, and even though her husband was dead, his family was unwilling to give her his inheritance. She and her son would receive a small stipend, but only if she agreed not to put Shelley's name into the press or publish anything under the name Mary Shelley herself. Now, you may think this is hysterical and they couldn't have been that serious, but one magazine actually berated the author of this book, Flora Domestica, for daring to quote Shelley in a book on caring for potted plants. Back in England, when she returned, Mary tried to soften up Shelley's image, uh, so she, she cut some more controversial parts from his poems in order to maybe try to clear their name. She would become interested in other men and become very, very uh, infatuated and attached to one woman, but none reciprocated her feelings. Imagine if Washington Irving had. She, was, she had a big crush on Washington Irving. Um, or if she'd accepted the advances, this is Washington Irving, uh, or if she'd accepted the advances, the advances of the writer of Carmen, Prosper Merime, Frenchman, but she didn't. Um, she returned to social circles, but she couldn't do much since she couldn't afford a carriage, and women of her class couldn't simply walk across town. Their dresses would not survive the city's dirt. This is serious. In Italy, that wasn't the problem. She could just, there it wasn't, you know, it was rural life, basically. It wasn't city life. She published novels. Um, she published the incest drama Valperga, the futurist dystopia The Last Man, and the historical novel the fortunes of Perkin Warbeck, but none would capture the public's imagination like Frankenstein. She revised Frankenstein in 1931 to take advantage of the renewed copyright and pitched nonfiction ideals wildly to her publisher. She pitched The Life of Muhammad, Conquests of Mexico and Peru, even a history of the earth in its earliest state. <laughs> She'd done the research apparently and of special interest to us here tonight, the Lives of Celebrated Women. Sadly, the publisher did not bite. Uh, instead, she was commissioned to write several volumes of biographical essays on literary and scientific men from France, Italy, and Spain. Men like uh, Dante, Cervantes, Montaigne, and still she snuck in three chapters on women. Madame de Sévigné, Madame Roland, and Madame de Stahl. Mary drew on all her resources to send her son to Harrow and then to Trinity, but he didn't flourish, let's say. She couldn't help but be slightly disappointed in it. Like, she loved him, obviously, but she was slightly disappointed. And what's more, his only passion in life was sailing. Biographer Muriel Spark, uh, who is an excellent dead lady herself and shares Mar Mary Shelley's initials, which she thought was very important. 
she wrote, stout, indolent, and placid, the Shelley squirearchy in his blood ran stronger than his father's or Godwin's genius. Mary did not foresee then that Percy's mediocrity had its ultimate advantages of sorts. She longed for him to shine in company and to distinguish himself in some vocation. Instead, he was to remain loyally by her side to sustain her old age. He was to make a comfortable marriage, contract no debts, and create no trouble anywhere. Sick burn, right? <laughs> this is him later in life. You could see it, right? He, was he, he loved like amateur theatricals. That's what he would do. He would put them up in his house, which had like a big Shelley altar that his wife ran. But he was happy. Godwin, too, would receive a pension from the government, relieving Mary of the financial burden of supporting him. Claire would, in Russia, I think she returned at this point, would find a passion for politics, arguing for a free love society in which children received their mother's name. Yeah. Right? Iceland in the house, isn't that? Oh, only girls get the woman's name? Oh, sucks. Mary, of course, could take no such radical stance, nor could she publish her father's final work on Christianity, which asked the question, what is there behind the curtain? And then answered, probably nothing. Um, it remained, this <laughs> word for word, probably nothing. It remained crucial for Mary to be as uncontroversial as she could be, nor was she herself a radical at this point, as she writes, I believe that we are sent here to educate ourselves, and that self-denial and disappointment and self-control are a part of our education, that it is not by taking away all restraining laws that our improvement is to be achieved. And though many things need great amendment, I can by no means go so far as my friends would have me. Though she would ultimately get Shelley's inheritance, his family, before she arrived, stripped the house of everything but the fire grates. She'd have to sell most of it off anyway to pay uh, for Shelley's debts that he'd run up during his lifetime. The legacies I mentioned earlier that he'd left to way too many people um, and pay back his family for the support that they'd given her and her son over the years since his death. In the end, she was financially secure for the first time at age 50, though it has to be said that never in her life, of course, had she had to wash her own clothes or cook her own meals. But it wasn't a happy life, so <laughs> there's that. She might may have finally been comfortable, but she wasn't feeling well. An undiagnosed brain tumor caused headaches and episodes of partial paralysis for the last 10 years of her life. In 1851, aged 53, Mary died at home after a series of strokes. Her daughter-in-law, the new Lady Shelley, ensured that she was buried in their home of Bournemouth, even exhuming Mary Shelley's parents, <laughs> so that, that gravesite that we've seen a lot of so far this evening, digging up the parents, putting them in coffins, or I guess taking the coffins in a cart and just basically waiting outside the church until the vicar gave in and allowed them to bury these radicals <laughs> in their churchyard. It's not hard to see Frankenstein's creature in Mary, who had felt so deserted and betrayed by her father, her creator, right? So guilty for the deaths of her mother and for Shelley's first wife, so exiled from the world that she was born into. I can only hope that in her book, in her strange book, her endlessly curious, hungry brain lives on in her readers, a slightly Frankensteinian transplant in our brain, making us see the world the way she did generously, honestly, 
radically. If you want to know more, I recommend uh, these two biographies. Muriel Sparks one, which is this one, uh, the biographical part is only 150 pages. Miranda Seymour's one is also excellent if you want to get into all the intricacies. It's also 500 pages longer than Muriel Sparks. <laughs> in closing, I'd like to read you a bit from Mary's journals that she wrote in 1822, just a few months before Shelley died, so before they went to that horrible villa. She wrote, let me love the trees, the skies, and the ocean, and that all-encompassing spirit of which I may soon become a part. Let me, in my fellow creature, love that which is, and not fix my attention on a fair form endued in imaginary attributes. Where goodness, kindness, and talent are, let me love and admire them at their just rate, neither adorning or diminishing. And above all, let me fearlessly descend into the remotest caverns of my own mind, carry the torch of self-knowledge into its dimmest recesses, but too happy if I dislodge any evil spirit or enshrine a new deity in some hitherto uninhabited nook. Thank you. Lauren Darsons on stage at Berlin Zakud. For images of Mary and much, much more, check out our show notes for this episode, which you can find at our website, deadladyshow.com. Be sure to listen to the rest of our Frankenfrauen series, including Mary Shelley's mother, the philosopher and feminist Mary Wollstonecraft, Ada Lovelace, the daughter of Lord Byron and pioneering computer programmer, and Elsa Lanchester, iconoclastic star of stage and screen, perhaps best known for her role as the Bride of Frankenstein. Our theme song is Little Lily Swing by Tritachion, which you can find on SoundCloud along with all episodes of the Dead Lady Show podcast. Follow us at Dead Lady Show or drop us a line to info at deadladyshow.com. Our Frankenfrauen miniseries is partly supported by Bard College Berlin, which featured Frankenstein in their project Eine Uni, Ein Buch, One School, One Book, this year. That initiative received support from the Stifterverband and the Klaus Schirer Stiftung. You can find more about Bard College Berlin at their website, berlin.bard.edu. Thanks to Florian and Katie and to all of you for joining us. I'm Susan Stowe.